Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to this conversation from Ideas for Leaders. I am Roddy Miller and I'm really pleased to have with us today Ryan Sherman. Ryan is Chief Science Officer at Hogan Assessment Systems. Um, many of you will already be very familiar with Hogan Assessments, which are, are well known across the HR and learning development communities. Um, and we will explore briefly uh, with Ryan what um, uh, the, the science officer does within that. But um, prior to that, uh, and, and I believe currently too, Ryan is a professor of psychology. And interestingly, um, on looking at his CV, Ryan, you, you studied psychology and history, which isn't necessarily always the, uh, an, an obvious coupling um, right at the beginning of your uh, academic or further education career as an undergraduate. But um, I, I think that also gives us some pointers to um, why some of the themes that we're going to discuss in today's conversation might, might have come together. But um, Ryan, well, welcome to Ideas for Leaders. Well, yeah, thanks for having me here, Roddy. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to, to chat with you about some of these things today. Uh, I, I mean, the, the, this chief science officer role, um, do you want to just very quickly give us a, a, a bit of a, a background as to what that that means uh, and what you do and, and perhaps how, how you came to be there? And then we can dig into the, some of the, the, the research that you've been doing. Sure. Yeah. So uh, as the chief science officer at Hogan, um, I run our data science division. Um, this is about a dozen people who have PhDs or master's degrees in IO psychology, quantitative psychology, or personality psychology. And our group really is the core research group of our organization. So um, as some folks may, listening may know, Hogan is a, a sort of a, is a research organization at its core. All of our assessments uh, have a scientific foundation to them. And my group is in charge of uh, maintaining the scientific foundation of those assessments, updating those assessments, updating our norms, which is something I'm really proud of. We have norms in 50 something countries. We have um, what I think of as the uh, best and most representative global norm of the working population um, in the entire world. Um, we also do custom solutions. So when clients come to us and have um, particular uh, jobs or particular roles that they need help filling or even particular leadership kinds of uh, questions about um, developing leaders in a certain way or, or, or using their leadership model in their own organization, we build custom solutions around those to help them um, get that personality science that we know uh, and, and inject that into their organization. And as everything's gone digital these days, and, and presumably your assessments have been digital for a long time now, but you, you must have a, a, an enormous flow of data coming in to uh, substantiate and, and inform the, the, uh, the frameworks and, uh, and assessments that you have. Well, uh, you know, I haven't been here since the beginning of the company, but I can guarantee you that it's a lot easier now than it was in the, in the <laughs> old days, so to speak. Uh, you know, yeah, we used to have the paper pencil assessments. We would send the assessments out in boxes and have to wait for them to come back in and run them through a Scantron machine and then score them and send back out the reports. 
Um, those days are long gone. Obviously, that's all done over the web now, but it, it also has increased the amount of data that we get. So we get um, uh, more than a million assessments a year, uh, again, from all over the globe. And so that's what really helps us um, you know, build the things that I mentioned earlier, like the, the global norm that we have. Um, you know, in that norm, less than, th there's not a single language in that norm uh, that, that contains more than 3% of a single language. So if you took US English as a language, only 3% of the people in that norm um, uh, took our assessments in US English. So it really is this nice representative sample of the globe. Um, I, I mean, I wasn't meaning to explore that, but I, I've got to chase that down a little bit. Um, I mean, is there a significant variation or, or do you think in these sort of core personality, human personality traits, and, and, and I know, you know we're going to come on to that very soon, but is there a, 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 a sort of standardized um, similarity across the globe or, or does culture change it and warp it from one, one corner of the world to, to the next? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to think about that question. One way is to think, um, do, do people who take the assessments in a different language or from a different country or different culture actually get different scores on the assessments? And the second way to think about it is, do the assessments relate to outcomes or even to each other um, in different ways? And, and for that first question, um, it's not very much. There are small cultural differences, but the, um, they tend to not have much of an impact. Um, the, the, probably the biggest cultural difference we've noticed is actually with, uh, managers in Japan for whatever reason. Um, and one of our assessments, we measure something called ambition. Uh, and it, for whatever reason, the managers in Japan tend to score a little bit lower on that. We think it has to do with sort of a self-effacing kind of culture that it's, um, that this, but it, what's really interesting is that that's not true in Korea. It's not true in China. So it's not like an Asian or, or even a Western Eastern thing. It's really just localized to Japan. So that's the only case where we really see much of a mean difference. Um, but then the second question is, uh, are, are our assessments related to different outcomes in different ways? And these are, and the answer seems to be no, even in, even in that example with Japan, ambition still predicts performance and leadership roles just as well as it does in any other country. Um, so, uh, and also the structure of our assessments are the same in, in pretty much every country around the world. And so um, that, that sort of tells you, I think big picture, what that really tells you is that personality is this universal thing. It's not, oh, there's personality in Western countries, there's personality and it's different. It really is this, this um, global universal. And I, I think that's really, really heartening. I mean, for ourselves at Ideas for Leaders, I mean, the, the, you know, the red thread through everything we do is trying to make organizations more human or, or explore that concept. And um, you know, if there is that universality, the, then that obviously makes it a more compelling, but also a, a, a hopefully simpler to do if we're all motivated and stimulated and energized by the same kinds of um, effects and drivers and emotions. Um, which, which I think brings us very nicely to the, the, this uh, theme around personality theory and the nature of human nature, which is, um, you know, it was a paper that you put together. Um, and uh, I was really attracted to it because I've seen that the true lots of different research, this idea around um, how in the late 19th century into the 20th century through industrialization we've at work we've we very much sort of um, turned 
humans into human resources, literally in a, ne in a negative sense, in, in, in the terms that we just see them as units of work rather than humans anymore. Um, and that, that has become quite restrictive in, in a knowledge economy in the 21st century. But I think what, what you found is that that in fact goes back, you, you think that goes back earlier. Um, tell us a bit about, about that, that sort of, uh, that pathway that, you, that you've identified. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the real key here is, you know, we're drawing on research from, you know, anthropologists, uh, um, uh, evolutionary biologists, things like that. So <laughs> I wish I could say, boy, this was all original research to me, but it's it goes real a lot deeper than that. Um, but essentially what we know is that um, early humans, our, our ancestors, um, lived in small um, nomadic groups and maybe 100 to 200 people. And, um, you know, that, that was mostly uh, foraging and hunting. And people worked maybe um, four to six hours a day. And most of the day was sort of free to, to you know, to uh, socialize, to engage, um, to sort of enjoy life. Um, and then, uh, you know, something really important happened. And this is re referred to as the Neolithic Revolution. Um, but it's uh, essentially the advent of agriculture or the advent of stable crops where, okay, we can stay in one place. So rather than following the herds or rather than going to where there are new things to forage, um, the groups, groups stayed in one spot. And what's really important, there's a few important things about that. One of the important things about that is that, that by staying in one spot, it allows individuals to accumulate wealth. So when you're traveling around, you really can't take a lot of wealth with you. And in fact, in those nomadic groups, we know that a lot of the decision-making was done by consensus, right? There was a leader, um, but it was mostly done via, you know, this is what the group thinks is best. We think this is a good, uh, a, a good choice for us to go do. And if the leader got too far out of line, the group had a way of stopping that, right? But once humans are settled, once they're in one spot and certain individuals, leaders perhaps, can accumulate lots of wealth. Now, suddenly the group doesn't really have much of an impact, can't have much of an influence on what that leader decides to do. The leader gets to decide what to do. And in fact, we think this is really the beginning of um, uh, sort of modern organizations, right? Where you have this hierarchy where somebody's at the top who has lots of power. And then there's another group, sort of a middle management group today. But in those days, it would be things like the priests, and the um, uh, other sort of nobles. And then, uh, and then there's a lower uh, a group who does most of the labor, who does most of the work. And that went on for several thousand years until we, we hit the industrial revolution. But even still, you see remnants of this structure in, in, even in, in today's corporate kind of management where the people that are at the top uh, get the highest rewards, have the most privileges, uh, and, and the people at the bottom are usually doing uh, the, the brunt of the, of the daily work. And, and there's some really fascinating stuff, and I don't know how deep we want to get into it, Roddy, but I mean, um, really interesting things that, that you can find out, like one of the things that was fascinating for me was city walls, right? So uh, city walls were invented around the, the, this Neolithic revolution when cities, when people started staying there. And I always thought, well, city walls were to keep invaders out, right? Were to keep people from attacking and taking the yeah. wealth that had been accumulated. But it actually turns out that they think the original city walls were actually built to keep people in from <laughs> escaping, right? That they needed the laborers to work in the fields. Um, yeah, and it, you know, it puts a, it, it just switches your perspective around, around, around all of this. That, um, because I mean, I think one of the things that, 
we are searching for now in the 21st century is uh, a great deal more agency. Uh, and, and I think in a way that has become very clear in the, in the last uh, 12 months when you know, everyone's been working from home or a vast number of us have suddenly been working from home, uh, which was always resisted before because the bosses didn't necessarily trust other people to work um, out of sight um, and, and therefore out of mind. Um, but in fact, that agency, uh, that, that ability to get on and get, and get the job done on your own um, ha has been there all along and has been demonstrated and in fact has, has created uh, you know, uh, lots of new energy, I think, in many people. Um, so if we take that right back to the, uh, to the sort of nomadic hunter-gatherer people, they were all free agents, really. Um, they may have been coordinated. It was leadership by consensus then. And it wasn't, uh, what you're saying is it wasn't until they became sort of fixed, settled, that um, th that hierarchy yeah. You know, was imposed and, and and a gradual loss of agency happened. Do, do, do you sort of recognize that uh, description? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, one of the things that's, that's really interesting about this is that in sort of Western um, culture, you sort of get this idea or you learn in through Western history classes that the Greeks discovered democracy. But um, based on, uh, you know, our review of anthropology and that kind of thing, what you really find out is all they did was rediscover what was sort of yeah. this natural state for humans for a really long time was that you know, everybody had to get along and the group had to decide what to do together. Otherwise the group risked failure, right? So one of the things that, that I think is really interesting about humans is compared to other species is we're, I like to refer to us as squishy, right? We're, we're rather squishy species, right? We're, we're not very fast uh, compared to say, you know, uh, a bobcat or anything like that. We, um, we're not very strong compared to like a gorilla. Um, we uh, 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 don't, um, don't have a particularly strong bite, um, you know, compare, or we don't have really sharp teeth, right? So, I mean, the single human on its own uh, has basically no chance of survival uh, compared to, to many, uh, like, you know, tigers, you know, they live basically all on their own all the time. Um, but, but there are a few things that, that do make us unique. And one is our ability to coordinate is that when we get into a group, we can coordinate our behavior and coordinate our actions really well. So what we learned, well, clearly what humans learned through evolution was that being part of a group and coordinating as part of that group is really important. And um, that's what those early tribes were all about. It was all about coordinating the group. And in some respects, and I know we're going to talk about leadership a little later on, um, that that's really what leadership is about, the, the ability to coordinate um, your group. And, you know, in these, gosh, I mean, there's all kinds of old things throughout history where you can find these, these warlords, right? So, and, and basically since the, the Neolithic revolution, it's just been one warlord after another, right? That's pretty much who's been in charge. But um, that, that, you know, essentially, they eventually sort of learned that, well, you know, you've got to feed your peasants at least because every now and then you have to go to war, right? So um, it's, uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's a rather abusive relationship would be the way I would describe it. Um, and you, you, know, you make this point that leadership is critical when it comes to competition between groups, um, and, and that's what you're, you're referencing there. But um, I mean, it all fits into Darwinism, really, doesn't it? The, you know, the, 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 the survival of, of the most adaptable, but the, also the most 
you know, the, the most collaborative um, because it's that it's that sense of collaboration. I mean, I, I think what, what amazes me is the um, yeah how, how much time humans as Homo sapiens or even predecessors to Homo sapiens, the Neanderthal and whatever the other ones, are, uh, Homo erectus and people. Um, but I mean, we're talking hundreds of, of, of thousands or thousands of millennia anyway. Um, and agriculture's only been around, only came in relatively recently. So the vast period of time while we've been evolving as human beings, uh, we, we, we were like that. We were nomadic hunter-gatherers. Um, and it's only in a relatively short period of time that agriculture came in. And then obviously just the a, a tiny period of that or percentage of that that, that we've been industrialized and, and now digitalized. Well, and what it speaks to, Roddy, I think is that there's this, um, this dynamic that goes on for every individual and within every group and that um, you, you have to, as I just mentioned, you have to be part of the group if you want to survive, right? If you're out on your own, you're, you're, you're just out of the gene pool, right? So everybody sort of learned that I need to belong to the group. In fact, there's all kinds of research now by psychologists showing that rejection or being left out of the group or being ostracized is really actually painful, right? And so I know some research that they do on ostracism where they, they have people throw a ball around and now they do it virtually. So they do it online, right? You throw a ball to someone, <laughs> they throw. And then eventually the other two players stop throwing the ball to you and you're just sitting there and they're throwing the ball back and forth. And, you're, and, you, and the people who are in this, even this little tiny thing feel so excluded and they've done brain scans that the, the part of the brain that is active, the most active when that happens is the same part of the brain that's active if somebody punched you in the arm. Right. So it actually is painful to be ostracized. And so we, we've learned this. This is deep rooted in our evolution is that being left out of the group is really painful because uh, largely the risk of death, at least to our ancestors. And so that's part one is that we, we really need to belong to a group. But part two is even within that group, there's these dynamics, right? There's these dynamics about who's in charge, who has authority, who has power. And even in those nomadic tribes, there was a sort of a status hierarchy. It wasn't as steep as we might see today. Um, and, and the rewards obviously weren't as great for the people at the top, but even there, um, there, there were certain, and, and you see this, you know, um, you know, we see this in chimpanzees, for example, there's status hierarchies among them as well. Um, and, and so it's a really interesting pair of motives that all humans have where we have to be motivated to get along with our group. But at the same time, within that group, we're trying to get ahead. We're trying to move up that status hierarchy. And there's always a risk every time we take a step up that we might offend somebody and we might get rejected from the group. Um, well, it's, I mean, I'm fascinated because a couple of years ago, I spent a week, 10 days with the, some Maasai tribesmen in in Kenya and got an insight, uh, and that was all, but an insight into how they, uh, how the Maasai work as a, as a social group. Um, and, and I think there's a huge amount we can learn from that. Um, uh, the, the, the core, the, the, there's a, a very reduced, um, almost negligible uh, sense of self in it. You, 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 you gain, um, credibility and status by doing things for the group um, and and that's imbued in you from a, from a very early age and i think that's that's a pretty pretty standard norm across indigenous peoples 
Um, uh, but one of the, as you're saying, one of the huge sanctions there is to be ostracized. So if you, if you, if you have a disagreement, then they call together the, the group um, and it can happen on, a, on a, a number of levels, how big the group is, depending on what the disagreement is. But um, you can have, uh, and, and the group will discuss it and there will be elders who will guide the discussion. And then there's a consensus decision made and you have to fall in with that. And if you don't fall in that, as you say, you're ostracized. And, right. and, and that, that is, is, you know, a, a pretty close to a death sentence, really. Because right. uh, <laughs> as you said, if you're out there on your own, you're, um, you know, you're, you're not going to survive for long. Now, in modern day Kenya, that, 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 that's less of a death sentence than it would have been 100 years ago. But um, th th that's how the culture has evolved. Right. But the key is that we still have those brains. Right. So we still have the brains of the people from you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago where ostracism was really painful. And so for us, it still has that same kind of pain, even though, OK, maybe if I'm left alone, um, you know, I won't really die. It, it, it's, it still has that level of pain. Um, but the, the flip side, perhaps, is that you know, we, we look at those kind of groups and because of that imperative to be consensual to fit in with the group you don't have many mavericks you don't have people who coming up with new with, with alternative ideas so it tends to be very traditional and, uh, uh, and you know if we look at the last 100 150 years the way we've 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 bounded forwards is by by having people come come in with you know completely novel ideas and, and and they often were mavericks i mean you look at uh, you know the likes of uh, tesla and people like that um and and indeed the modern day tesla musk um yeah. so uh yeah it, it, it it's difficult to, there is no perfect solution but it's trying to find that balance perhaps you know that reminds me of there's some really interesting research um looking at entrepreneurs and we've done some of this ourselves but um, looking at entrepreneurs and also, well, one of the things that we know is that actually the personality profile, of the entrepreneur looks really similar to the personality profile of the criminal. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, wow, isn't that fascinating? And then I found out there was some economist who had written some theory paper, uh, maybe three or four decades ago, basically saying, you know, entrepreneurship is about the degree to which society lets you commit crimes. Like that was his whole theory was that in societies where they have really strict laws about innovation, you have a lot of criminals and not any entrepreneurs. But when you have loose laws about innovation, um, then you get lots of entrepreneurs and fewer criminals which I think is really yeah. fascinating. It's an outlet for criminals to show that, <laughs> well, well, I don't know which way it is, but yeah, to show your innovative streak. Um, uh, so, so uh, I mean, where does that take us then? You know, we, we, if that human nature is embedded in our genes because of millennia of conditioning around that, um, and we know that we are social animals, uh, and, and we can see that. And, and I think you know, that's clearer today in uh, April 2021 than, than it probably would have been a year ago. Uh, you know, we, we know that what we've missed in terms of socializing uh, and we know what we miss in terms of not being in the office. Uh, what, what, what does that tell us to, about what we need in an effective leader today? Yeah, well, so the, that's where there's really important um, 
implications of the Neolithic revolution. So um, leadership prior to the Neolithic revolution was really, again, done by consensus. The group, or as you mentioned with the Maasai tribe, it might be some elders, some people who had accumulated wisdom that the folks, that the, the rest of the group trusted, right, to be in charge, right? To make decisions that would benefit everyone, right? That's who would be in charge of the group. Well, once we hit the Neolithic revolution, um, you know, individuals, might be put in charge or get themselves put in charge based on um, wanting to to win that status competition, wanting to have more wealth, more power, accumulate more for themselves out of selfish interests. And that's exactly what we see uh, today. And in fact, this is what has greatly impacted the way we understand and study leaders. We tend to think of leaders and this isn't just true for everyday people. This is also true for academics doing research on leadership. We tend to think of leaders as the people who are at the top, the people who are in charge. And the, there's a lot of problems with that. As we talked about it with the Neolithic revolution, that would be whoever could accumulate the most wealth, whoever could pay the army, whoever had the most power, um, whoever got blessed by the Pope or whatever it was, right, to, 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 that made them uh, the leader. Um, well, in today's uh, world, it's who in, in a modern organization, right? So a lot of this changed with the Industrial Revolution, and it became less about the size of the army, but more about your political capital. And so who gets to the top of IBM today? Who gets to the top of Disney? Who gets to the top of the biggest corporations uh, in, in the world today? Well, uh, well, let's think about what those corporations are. Those corporations are, all, are mostly male-dominated white organizations, right? Particularly at the top. And who's really good at that? Who's really good at getting that? Well, politicians, right? People who are good at playing politics. Um, and we've done some research basically showing that in some respects, there's no real psychological similarities between top CEOs uh, people who are in CEO roles, uh, other than their skill, their political skill. That's the real similarity is that political skill is what gets you into those leadership positions. But that's where the problem really starts because getting into it, and we refer to this as the within group competition, right? So you win that within group competition for status. Now you're in the top status position, but that doesn't actually mean you're effective at leading. And again, if we compare that to our ancestors tribes, right? The people who were, uh, who, who were put in leadership roles um, were really effective at leading. That's the reason they were put in that role. Today's leaders aren't necessarily, they could be good leaders, but they aren't necessarily effective at leading what they're really effective at is playing that political game. And I, I think that, I mean, that that resonates with me very, very loudly. That, that the more I sort of explore leadership, the, the more I think there, there are these two very distinct, different types of, of leader. There's the, the leader that we have come to think of as a leader, who is the politician, um, but isn't necessarily very good at, actually doing the things that we then describe leaders as needing to do. Um, that they're good at doing the charismatic, standing up and, and, and communicating um, and, and selling, selling an idea, selling a purpose perhaps. But in terms of the definition of leadership, which is sort of creating the conditions where people can do their best work, you know, where we can get people to come together and, and, and make the greatest impact, they're probably not very good at doing that. Um, and, and I wonder whether we we can confuse ourselves with this word leadership because 
we have in our mind, at the front of our mind, this, this concept still of the great leader, you know, the great man theory. Um, but while we know that, in fact, good leaders are possibly uh, you know, people who, who listen, people who uh, allow you to go out and explore and be curious and, 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 and try new things, people who you know, therefore accept that mistakes will get made um, and, 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 and pull you together. They're much more collaborative. They're, they're vulnerable. Um, if we look at some recent, there, there are quite a lot of strongman politician leaders around the world at the moment. And you, know, they, you, you certainly wouldn't put vulnerable as, a, as an adjective to describe them. Um, or indeed, very good at listening, one would uh, hazard a guess. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think one of the big, um, a couple of, of big ideas, again, think about what effective leadership would have been like for our ancestors, right? Effective leadership would have been about, again, somebody that the group trusts, right? Well, how do you build trust? How do you get the group to trust you? Well, you have to have integrity, right? You have to be you know, honest. You have to not do, not double deal, uh, not engage in cronyism, right? You had to treat everybody fairly. Um, we also know that those effective leaders of those groups had to have good judgment. They had to make good decisions about, you know, should we go over there or should we go over there, right? And if you made a bad decision, your tribe was out of the gene pool, right? So it was really important to have leaders who made, you know, who made good decisions. It was also really important to have leaders who were humble, who could um, learn from their mistakes, could improve and could get better. Um, and We've lost a lot of that. You know, that's, that's all still true today in terms of effective leaders, right? Being effective is really about those kinds of things. But we've lost that when we think about selecting leaders. Um, and, and just, I think a lot of this in the corporate world really kicked off in the 1970s. So it used to be that, a, a, you know, a CEO um, would make, um, you know, two, four, up to 10 times the, the average salary of the typical employee in an organization. Um, and then some economists uh, started talking about what's known as agency theory, which is this idea that people will only, you know, the CEO isn't motivated by just their salary. They're not motivated to do just their job. They need to be extra motivated if we want to drive. And this was mostly driven by investors, right? So investors who wanted to get a better return on their investment said, I want the stock price to go up so I can get a better return on my investment. So they started looking for CEOs who promised to do those kinds of things, right? Who, who made big promises about, um, you know, big return on investment who are again, very charismatic, very persuasive, very good at playing the political game. And in fact, there's some research showing that those kind of CEOs actually do, you know, drive up you know, stock prices. I mean, I, I think a really classic example, um, and he's not with us anymore, so it's a little unfair, uh, would be uh, somebody like Jack Welch, who, who drove up the price of GE crazy. But uh, then he left and GE has been a disaster ever since. And not because of, um, well, he's not there anymore. And so now it's a disaster. It's because of all the policies he put in place that were really just faking it, really making it look like GE was more worth more than it really was, drove up that investment, drove up the return for investors, drove up the price, but ultimately there was nothing there. The company was losing money. And so he left GE in shambles. Um, but again, you know, made those promises, was big, bold, charismatic, you know, got into that leadership role um, but really wasn't that effective at making the organization perform. 
yeah, it's that sort of lack of sustainability, isn't it? It's that um, you, you, your focus, uh, yeah, and one can be very cynical about it or only just slightly cynical about it, but you're, 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 the focus of some CEOs may well be just to ensure that the, the share price is at its peak at the moment they take their share options and, and retire. Um, uh, but um, I, I mean, I, th I think one of the other things that came through very clearly in that Maasai experience, and I've been exploring it a bit more uh, through my work with territory mapping, is this uh, idea that you know they don't really have they, they don't have a leader in the Maasai, um, and that's often the case again in other indigenous groups. They they have different leaders for different uh, um, sort of contexts and different different decision making areas, um, but they all tend to be elders uh, and elders have that sort of quiet wisdom uh, approach to them so they're not out there instructing and um, give barking orders and telling people that this is what we're going to do but they're, they're there as a sounding board and I, and I think often that that whole concept of leadership is lost uh, uh, in the west this idea of of the elder uh, and wisdom um, and I know that you have uh, have been doing some work around this concept of the, the absentee leader. Uh, and I wonder whether those two, those two things are, are sort of either end of the spectrum uh, or, or perhaps more closely allied. You know, the... Yeah, I mean, the, the absentee leader is a, is a really fascinating line of research that we only got into relatively recently. Other folks have been doing it for a while, um, but essentially, what we find in organizations and what some other folks find in organizations is particularly at the mid-management level, right? Which when we're talking about big corporations, there is this um, plethora of leaders who uh, don't really do a whole lot. So they're, they're essentially um, in these leadership positions, but they're really not uh, there for the group. They really don't, you know, vouch for the group. They don't really do things to help the group improve. They sort of just um, hold, hold the thing, you know, hold, just keep, you know, keep chaos from erupting. Right. So uh, to, to, to give a comparison, right. So, you know, the big, bold, brash leaders tend to make headlines, right. They tend to, you know, and everybody catches the you know, wind of them in the wall street journal or, or, or whatever. Um, but uh, these uh, these leaders, these absentee leaders, are are fly under the radar. They don't make a lot of noise, um, and so that's why, in fact, in some respects, their managers actually like them. Right, the top executives kind of like these middle managers who don't do anything because they don't cause any problems. Right, they just keep. They just, um, you know, you come to them with a problem, they go, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I'll go talk to, and then they don't do anything about it. Right, um, and so. And the staff feel extremely alienated by these absentee leaders because they feel like this person's not engaging me. They're not, they don't care. They're just here collecting a paycheck every week and just sort of writing this thing out. And um, the, it's actually really toxic for the staff. The staff, you know, it drives their, their leaders crazy uh, or sorry, it drives the staff crazy, these leaders do. And they quit and, and, they, and, they, and they end up leaving. Um, but the thing that's really fascinating about it is because they cause so few problems, right, that they, that they end up staying in these positions for a really long time, um, even though they're not very effective, right? They're not actually building a team. They're not making the team better and high performing. Um, they're, in, in fact, um, just, just avoiding conflict, avoiding problems, avoiding yep. issues. 
Um, now, I, 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 but do they get promoted uh, or, or as a general rule, or they're quite happy to just? Yeah, not so much, right? They're really not that motivated to, for, for a bigger promotion. They're not looking for the, and, and again, this is another reason why those senior executives sort of like them because um, they don't see them as competition, right? This isn't competition for me. This isn't competition for my job. This person keeps problems away from me. This person pushes my agenda uh, down the pipeline, right? And, um, you know, I don't, I don't have to, to worry about them. It's, it's really interesting. We, we did some research um, looking at performance ratings on managers um, a couple of years ago saying, okay, what, what personality characteristics predict getting good performance ratings as a manager? These performance ratings, by the way, came from executives, right? So directors and executives are making these ratings of these sort of mid-level managers. And what we found that, that predicted um, the performance ratings was basically being really docile. Was like nothing that looked like what you would think of as a stereotype of leadership, not pushing for results, not driving your team ahead, not setting long-term goals, right? It was just basically causing no problems. That's what it was. It was basically just being sort of a yes person. Okay, yeah, sure, whatever, you know. Um, that that was actually the number one predictor of, of being rated as a high-performing manager. And it's just really, uh, I think that's really fascinating because what it says is that what the people at the top of the organization, and again, we can go back to these sort of feudal organizations or even um, a neo, uh, post-Neolithic revolution uh, organizations, right? Again, you've got these top you know, people at the very top, and then you've got that, that mid-level group, the, the, the nobles, the priests who you know, they, they get paid pretty well. Uh, and uh, the, as long as they're not, you know, in rebellion or causing problems, um, everything's all good with the, with the people at the top. I mean, in a way, it's a, it, it's a pretty good life, isn't it? If you're an absentee leader, I mean, it's not good for the organization and it's not good for the people beneath you. But, but you know, if, if you're not driving things forward so you don't have the stress of that, you're merely keeping it at this semblance of, um, yeah, effectiveness for, so that those above you who pay you think you're uh, you're doing a good job, then um, then you can still reap the rewards. So so what's the um, what should be the response to that? Because obviously that's not sustainable or good good for the 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 growth and productivity of the organisation. Yeah, in fact, that's actually what some other researchers find is that we tend again we tend to think of oh uh, you know the people at the very very top are the ones that cause the problems or cause the disasters and, the, and occasionally that is the, that is the case, but more often in a typical organization the people at the top are are fairly effective. It's those mid level managers that are creating this toxicity you know this toxic nature inside the organization that you know are making people want to quit and be disengaged. And so the cure, right? So what's the cure for that? Um, you know, uh, you know, coming from my background, uh, we, we think the cure is good personality assessment, right? So if you can um, do a good job selecting these managers, and again, that's another problem. Again, even a lot of times those managers are selected um, because they don't cause problems, because they do an okay job, because um, they don't, they're not seen as a threat, Um you know, to, to senior level people, right? The, they don't, who senior level people might be a little reluctant to promote someone uh, who they, who they see maybe shine them. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, there is, yeah, there, so the, with good personality assessment, well, the other cure and the other thing that we've talked about 
is you, you cannot rely on top uh, director and executive level ratings. Like they don't really know what's going on. What's really going, if you want to know if these leaders are effective, you have to ask the team, yep. right? A ask the people because they, they know, right? If they have an absentee leader, they will tell you that this person's ineffective and here's all the reasons why. But often people don't want to do that they, they, because it takes more time. It takes more effort. And the other thing is we're sort of biased to trust our own judgment, Right. If, if five or six people tell us that manager is ineffective and we're like, well, but I like that manager and I get along with that manager. And, you know, we tend to think all oh, those five or six people, they're just, you know, grumpy and can never be satisfied or whatever. Right. right? We tend to trust our own judgment more than others. Um, and I wonder if, you know, to speak up for the absentee leader a little bit is, yeah, are they like that through a lack of development? Are they like that through, I mean, from executive managerial development? Are they like that because they fear being more assertive or more innovative? Um, it, does it come often from you know that that restricting nature that that you know, they don't want to upset that they know that that they're on a comfortable position at the moment? Why upset it? Um, and uh, so can can they be prompted into into being more active? Well, yeah, certainly some of it comes from that. Some of it comes from just being, you know, burnt out and worn out on an organization. Um, some of it becomes from saying, you know, I don't want to play the political game anymore. I just want to be comfortable here. Um, some of it uh, comes from, from is learned. A lot of it is learned by watching what goes on in the organization and saying, I just, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm giving up. I've def I'm defeated. Um, yeah. On that. yeah. Um, no, I think that's um, really, yeah, I, I'm sure that's endemic is that a, 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 we, we replicate the, the behaviors that we, that we've experienced ourselves. Um, and also, you know, by the time you're, you, you've, You've got to that position. You, as you say, that you're you're burnt out a little bit. Um, fascinating, I, Ryan. We're, we're we're out of time. Um, it's been absolute pleasure speaking to you. And and you know there are so many avenues here. It'd be it'd be great to um, come back and, and and explore some of these with you in more depth in the future. But um, in the meantime, thank you very much indeed. That's been hugely enjoyable and uh, and given us lots of food for thought. Uh, so. Uh, Ryan Sherman, thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot, Roddy. Happy to be here.